Hey everybody, Pierre Quinn here. You're listening to episode 133 of the Leading Wild Green podcast, where my mission is to help you live, learn, and lead with confidence. My guest on this episode is Mark Summers. That's right, the Mark Summers. Before we jump into that conversation with Mark, I want to thank you so much for supporting the Leading Wild Grain podcast. You've been rating it. You've been sharing it on social media. Your feedback has been incredible. I know we've had some amazing guests that have made reviewing the podcast super easy, but I thank you for taking the time to do that. Now, for all of my emerging leaders out there who listen to this podcast, I just I just want to encourage you to, to be intentional about how you end the year and about how you begin next year. Now, I know a lot of us haven't slept. Many of us have been up all night. We've been looking at the polls and we've been really worried about the leadership of this country. And for a few moments, maybe even for a few days, we've taken our minds off the leadership scope that we're supposed to have. And I just want to remind you, as you are concerned about who's leading the country, you still need to pay careful attention to how you're leading your team and how you're leading yourself. And I want to help you. Go to PRCQuinn.com slash coaching, PRCQuinn.com slash coaching. Check out my Courageous Leadership Coaching Intensive. I want to help you end 2020 well. There's several weeks left in the year and a lot to do. And then I want to help you be positioned for 2021. So go to PRCQuinn.com slash coaching to check out my Courageous Leadership Coaching Intensive. Okay, conversation with Mark Summers. Let me just read his bio from his website, MarkSummersTV.com, and then I'll tell you how Mark and I got connected. Here's what it says. Walk down any street in America and you will discover people of all ages will stop him to say hello. Whether it's daytime or nighttime television viewers, many recognize this multifaceted talent for his wide-ranging contributions to television in a career that has been successful both in front of and behind the camera. Mark is currently hosting the longest running show on Food Network, Unwrapped, a job he has held for 11 years. He has also hosted Next Food Network Star, Ultimate Recipe Showdown, and many specials for the channel. Mark is also executive producer of Dinner Impossible, Food Feuds, and Restaurant Impossible. Some will remember him as the former host producer of Nickelodeon's Double Dare. And what would you do? while others remember him from his days on ABC's home show where he doubled as both correspondent and guest host. I grew up watching Mark Summers in Double Dare, and I always wanted to get slimed. Like, I always wanted to get slimed on on Double Dare. So I really loved that show as a kid growing up, and I remember several years ago watching Unwrapped. I loved Unwrapped because it was a show about how all of my favorite treats were made, and I was captivated about and I was captivated by the production process. And then several years ago, I started watching Restaurant Impossible. And I fell in love with that show, Robert Irvine, and the transformation process that he goes through as a chef and a coach of restaurant owners and entrepreneurs coming in and helping them not just fix their food, but fix their process, fix their way the restaurant looks and working on relationships kind of similar to what Marcus Lemonis does with The Prophet. So if you're connected to Marcus Lemonis, can you let him know? I want to have a conversation with him as well. I was watching Restaurant Impossible not too long ago, and they were getting ready for a big restaurant makeover reveal. And everyone's just kind of scampering, trying to get ready, moving things around, painting and vacuuming and all of this stuff. 
And I remember seeing someone wipe down tables. And I said, is that Mark Summers wiping down tables? But I can't be Mark Summers wiping down tables. I mean, storied career. What? Why does he have to wipe down tables? But it was. It was Mark Summers wiping down a table, getting a restaurant ready for a reveal on Restaurant Impossible. So I reached out to Mark and his team, and we were able to have this conversation. And I'm excited for you to hear it. If you are a Double Dare fan growing up, you're really going to enjoy this conversation as Mark tells the story about how he got his job. If you're not a Double Dare fan, if you don't know Mark Summers at all, you're going to enjoy this conversation because of the themes and the things that you can learn from a person who's had a storied Hollywood career. These insights you're going to be able to apply no matter the industry that you work in. So enjoy it. Uh, those who listen to the Leading Wild Green podcast are really going to uh, appreciate our conversation today. So I want to dive right in. Mark, take take us back. Um, did you always know, you know, from a little kid growing up, did you always know that you wanted to be in in show business and lights and be around stars? Was that was that always on the horizon for you? I came out of the womb knowing exactly what I wanted to do. From the time I was a little kid, I would watch. Uh, the Ed Sullivan show and see the comedians and say, gee, how do you become that? And then uh, when Johnny Carson was on a show called Who Do You Trust, a game show, I would run home from school and get home at 3.30 when the show started uh, on the ABC affiliate in Indianapolis where I grew up. And I thought, this guy is amazing. And then I found out that he started his career as a magician. So I thought, well, I'm in Indiana. How do you get in show business? So I had a friend who was in a, a magic club in junior high. I was only in about fifth or sixth grade. And he started to teach me magic. And so I was so focused like a laser beam uh, from the very beginning that um, I just wanted to get the hell out of Indianapolis and figure out how to get to New York or Los Angeles and get in show business. But you know what? I'm one of the lucky ones. I always say if you're lucky enough to have a passion then it's easy. But there are so many people I've met throughout the years, and this is why what you're doing is so great, is um, who have no idea what the heck they want to do. And I feel sorry for those people because I think like you, I don't know you that well, but my question is, um, you know, you probably feel like you've never worked a day in your life because that's how I feel because you found your passion and you're doing it. Man, I, I love that perspective in the the focus on finding and pursuing a, a passion. What, what's your advice for those people who, you know, they say, man, it's easy for you, Mark. You knew right out of the womb what you wanted to do. And you had this, you had these inspirations that you saw on TV or on the radio, but you know, I'm working somewhere and I'm not feeling it. And I don't really know uh, what I, what I want to do. What What is one of the first things that a person in that predicament could do? You're responsible for your own happiness. And so to sit back and wallow about, I hate my job and I really don't want to do this, but I don't know how to do something else. My response to that is, and maybe easier said than done, um, figure it out. Um, we had a young girl who worked for me early on when I was doing a show called Dinner Impossible as the exec producer. And she kept wanting to work in the industry. And we had her doing menial jobs. And um, she finally came to me one day and said, you don't get it. And I said, what don't I get? She said, I'm really good. I said, good at what? And she said, I think I would be really good at casting. So I put her with my regular casting guy and um, she grew just instantaneously. At one point uh, when we moved into Restaurant Impossible, um, she said, I'm leaving, went to a bigger and better company in New York City. And she's won like three Emmys now. Uh, so she kept uh, pursuing 
something, even though she kept getting knocked down, she finally knocked on my door one day and said, you know, hey, you just don't get what it is that I want to do and who I am. And sometimes you have to go back several times. I'll tell you a great story from my perspective. I came out to Los Angeles in 1973, uh, wanting to become a talk show host. At that time, everybody thought Johnny Carson was ready to quit. And that's when the uh, insurgence of the comedy store started. So all these people who thought they were funny came out from a million different places. And uh, I got a job initially as a warm-up guy on shows like Star Search and Webster and What's Happening Now in Our Magazine, because it was the closest I could get my foot to go in the door. And uh, I assumed that everybody knew that that's what I wanted to do, be the next Johnny Carson. So I was working as a warm-up guy in Our Magazine, and there was a young comic by the name of Will Schreiner, who I was working with at the comedy store at the time. And Group W, the Westinghouse Broadcasting Company, uh, had a lot of talk shows back on during the day. Mike Douglas, people like that. Merv, I think, was at one point a Group W show. And they make an announcement that my friend Will Schreiner is getting his own talk show. Well, I went berserk. And I went into our exec producer, Marty Berman, and I said, what is wrong with you? And he said, what's wrong with me? What are you talking about? I said, Will Schreiner's getting his own talk show? And he goes, yeah, what about it? I said, I've been sitting here for the last three years doing warm-ups on Our Magazine, and nobody thought about me. And he said, Mark, I thought you wanted to do warm-ups. I didn't know you wanted to host a talk show. And this light bulb went off of my head. I knew what I wanted to do. I just didn't tell anybody else what I wanted to do. I assumed they knew. But guess what? They didn't. So it was a great lesson to learn. And I, I love that story because there, there are so many people out here, especially young professionals who they're waiting more or less to be discovered, even though they're in places for the discovery to already happen. You talked about the young lady that you worked with and then your your personal story. Uh, what are some of the ways that we can have that conversation? You know, maybe some of us don't feel uh, comfortable kind of knocking on the door, bar- barging in the room. Maybe if our personality or temperament is different. How do we approach that conversation? Or maybe we realize we work with someone who, if we did that, it may be <laughs> career suicide or we may find ourselves, <laughs> you know, homeless the next day. What are some some different ways that we can approach putting ourselves out there and letting the world kind of know or either people who have the leverage and key to the door, letting them know what we what we're really interested in? Uh, the worst word in the English language is the word no. It stops creativity and it halts wonder. And people are intimidated by the word no. Therefore, if you don't ask the question, you won't hear the word no, and then nothing will ever happen. Hmm. So you cannot be timid. And when I, I lectured colleges fairly often, or I did before COVID, and um, I would say to kids, who, who is it that you admire? And they would come up with various people on Entertainment Tonight or various reality shows. And I have always said, have you ever tried to get in touch with those people? It is fascinating to me. Hmm. There was somebody, a writer I was trying to find the other day, a producer. I just went on um, Twitter and messaged him. And in 10 minutes, he got back to me. Okay. Hmm. So there's that. Okay. You can get to almost anybody via the web. That's number one. Number two, the importance of a FedEx letter. I always say you cannot ask for a job, but people love to get, give advice. So I say, okay, let's, let's pretend that you want to meet Oprah Winfrey. Okay. The odds of that may not happen, but what you can do, and I'm going to tell you this, Oprah will probably kill me. Um, if you Google Oprah's home address, you can find it. Okay. It's actually there. Mm-hmm. And you can FedEx a letter to her and many other people and say, and this is the opening line of your letter. I need some advice. Okay. Mm-hmm. You can't say I need a job, but everybody loves to give advice. 
And maybe Oprah won't call you back, but maybe some from her office will say, hi, uh, we got your FedEx. Um, what is it that you need? And maybe Oprah will. T- I saw I was watching uh, Instagram the other day and Oprah was making phone calls to people to get them to, to vote. Mm-hmm. So believe it or not, she's really approachable, um, as are most people. And what you do is you try to get a meeting with these people. So you're not going to get a meeting at Oprah's house, but, and not because of COVID, it's a little difficult. But if you can at least do a, a FaceTime kind of situation and, yeah. and say, I need some advice and listen, and then you can say to them after your quote in the door, hey, I need a job. Is there anything you can do to point me in? Because um, once you're in the door, it, it's up to you to make those decisions as to what to ask. But if you're too afraid in that opportunity to say, hey, can you a give me a job, or if not, can you point me to somebody who has the importance of you that can open that door for me? Because if you don't ask, you don't get. And most people I know are too scared to even ask that question. Man, powerful, powerful advice, Mark. Man, thank you, thank you so much. Now I'm not advising everyone to send a FedEx letter to to Oprah, but maybe you should. Maybe maybe <laughs> you maybe you should and, and see how that that works out for you. And maybe if it it is if it isn't Oprah, it's somebody else that you're trying to get their attention and ask for advice from. And Mark just gave you he just gave you a major key there. Now now, Mark, I want to go back to when I first discovered you as a kid. Um, <laughs> To the wonderful, amazing, life-changing show, and I've watched several shows that you've been on, and I want to talk about you know what made me reach out to you as well. But man, t- Mark, take us back to Double Dare. I mean, <laughs> for a kid who was born in the '80s, you know, double every kid I knew wanted to be on Double Double Dare. For those <laughs> for those people who are listening who've never heard of it, I'm sorry that they haven't. Please go yeah. Google it. But kind of give us the perspective on what Double Dare is and how that came to be a reality for you. Well, it was a show that changed my life. It put me on the map and it put Nickelodeon on the map. I had come to Los Angeles in 73, um, started off as a page at CBS Television City. I wrote game shows. I was doing warm-ups. I was working at the Comedy Store, the Improv. I was actually a professional magician working at the Magic Castle. I was doing as many jobs as I could and trying to get out there to be seen by as many people as possible. And after about 12 and a half years of knocking on doors, um, it just wasn't happening for me. Uh, as much as I tried and with all the experience I had, nothing was happening. And there was one summer where everything just fell in. All the shows I was working on got canceled. I had just attempted to buy a new house. All of a sudden, I didn't have the money for the down payment. I didn't have money to send my kids to camp that summer. I was screwed. And there was a guy I went to college with, Lawrence Milner, who was from Cape Town, South Africa. And we stayed friends for many years. And Lawrence um, was the largest distributor of smoked salmon to the entire continent of Australia. He was in Herods of London. And he would come to the States every now and then and come to the house and bring me the smoked salmon. And I had this ingenious idea. Why don't I try to smoke, sell smoked salmon in the States? Because it was such a powerful product that I thought. So I, I literally, he sent me over several pounds of this stuff. And I knocked on a door. I knew nothing about what the hell I was about to do. It was a, a deli called Jillian's in Larchmont, California. And I said, uh, hi there. My name is Mark. I have this great smoked salmon. It's in uh, Harrods of London. Well, this lady actually was born and raised in London. So that opened up her eyes. I said, we're the largest distributor in uh, Australia. Why don't you try it? And she tried it and she ordered three pounds. Well, I ran to a payphone. That's how long ago this was. And <laughs> there were no cell phones. And I woke up Lawrence in Cape Town. I said, the first door I knocked on, I sold this smoked salmon. Great. Uh, So I said, send me more. So he sent me the smoked salmon and I knocked on many doors and kept selling it. Well, then I said, there's this place called the Price Club. It's gigantic. It became Costco. 
I said, you need to fly out here and we need to knock on some doors at Price Club. So he flew from Cape Town and I made a cold call to the buyer of the fish department of, uh, <laughs> of the Price Club. And he had a South African accent. I said, where are you from? He said, I'm from Cape Town. I said, do you know Lawrence Milner? Yeah, I went to school with Lawrence Milner. So I put Lawrence on and I said, you won't believe this, but you know, so we drove down to Orange County where they were based at the time. And then before you knew it, we were selling 80,000 pounds a month to the price club. Okay. Wow. It was insane. Then we got into Trader Joe's. So my life had changed. I was doing warmups on the side, but the real success was in smoked salmon, but I was miserable. <laughs> I just, you know, was starting to make a living, but I just didn't enjoy what I was doing. Lo and behold, a gentleman by the name of Dave Garrison, who was a ventriloquist with uh, me when I was doing magic back in Indiana, called me up. He had moved to Los Angeles and uh, decided he didn't want to be a performer anymore. I wanted to be a producer. So he said, I got a phone call from some network I'd never heard of called Nickelodeon. <laughs> and um, they want me to audition for a game show. Why don't you go instead of me? So I said, okay. So I went the next day and they said, Dave Garrison. I said, Dave's not here. My name is Mark Summers. Uh, can I audition? They said, sure. So I went and auditioned. I thought I nailed it. I got off. I went to the pay phone, called my agent, Richard Lawrence, and said, hey, Richard, I nailed this. I'm going to get this job. And he said, guess what? I have 10 other, client, 10 other clients going over auditioning over the next two days. I wish you a lot of luck. Well, I got a call back two or three times. And the one thing I always learned was when you go to audition, get the name of the exec producer and the casting director and get their names and numbers and how to contact them. There was no email back in the day, so I got phone numbers. Uh, so in case you wanted to get in touch with these people. Well, after three auditions, um, I knew they were going to start shooting the end of September. It was the end of August. I had not heard from them. So I called Mike Klinghoffer, the exec producer. I said, hi, my name is Mark Summers. I auditioned for you. I guess funny you called. I was just talking about you. We actually have it narrowed down to you and another guy, but we can't figure out who to hire. And I said, well, what's the problem? He goes, well, when we did the auditions, you guys auditioned with adults. We don't know if you're good with kids or not. I said, well, I have two kids. He goes, yeah, so what? And I said, well, I used to do magic shows for kids. He said, yeah, that doesn't mean anything. So I came up with the idea. Why don't you put me and whoever this other guy is in a studio with real live kids, play the show and let the best man win. And he said, I'll call you back. An hour later, he called me back. So what are you doing over Labor Day? I said, flying to New York and auditioning. He said, yes. So he flew me and this other guy to this day. I don't know who it was to New York City. I auditioned first, went in and did a half hour version of what Double Dare was, was with live kids. The next guy did it. The next day I get the phone call. Congratulations, you're the host of Double Dare. I said, let me ask you a question. You auditioned a thousand people in New York and a thousand in LA. Why did I get this job? And he said, quite honestly, you and the other guy were the same. But at the end of his audition, he looked in the camera and said, uh, is that it or do you guys want me to do something else? And I said, we'll be back with more Double Dare right after this. And because I threw it to commercial, he thought I was more professional. It changed my life. And that's why I got the job. Man. So, A, I was aggressive enough to make a phone call, and I was host boy 24-7, and I always used to watch Bob Barker on a show called Truth or Consequences mm -hmm. say, I'll be back after this, and that's what I did, and that few words changed my life. It put me on the map uh, for a career at age 34 that I never thought I was going to have, and it was the turning point for Nickelodeon. Mark, that's, that's, that's an amazing uh, a fantastic story. I want. I want to ask you. Uh, I want to go back and ask you in that space between you know trying to figure out what the next move is and not having money and selling smoked salmon. What what was it that kept you 
kept you doing the job and being effective at the job, even though that you knew this wasn't your final resting space? You didn't know Double Dare was coming, but you knew something else was coming. How did you keep open to that something else that was coming, even though you were focused on, you know, I got to put food on the table right now? Well, I was taught early on back in Indiana and the schools I went to and my parents, um, everything you approach, do the best job you possibly can. If you're the garbage man, if you, my dad had a grocery store in Indianapolis and I would work there on Saturdays and Sundays. And he taught me when you're stocking the shelves, unless you do it properly and stack it, you know, so it's organized and people can see the labels. Or if you're in the produce section, uh, you just can't throw lettuce in there. You have to make it look approachable. So um, I took what I learned as a kid in these various jobs. I had a paper route and, you know, I always approached it like it was the most important job I ever had. I made $6 a week at this ridiculous job, but I always knew that I was going to stack the papers properly. I had a list. These people wanted it inside the door. These people wanted it inside the mailbox. These people wanted it, you know, here or there. So I made sure I did it right. So when I would go to collect to get the payment every week, they would tip me. And I thought, okay, I did a good job. Therefore, I'm being rewarded for doing a good job. And the other thing that motivated me in my early 30s was I had two kids and a mortgage payment. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't afford to not do the best job possible because I needed to get a paycheck and I needed to eat, you know, and if I couldn't keep my, my family going, well, you know, I didn't want to become homeless and I didn't want to, you know, become late on my payments. Therefore, I did the best job I could in whatever I approached, whether I hated it or not. Fast forward to really how we got connected. I was watching one of my favorite shows. No, growing up watching Double Dare, loving Double Dare. And now I have this 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 show I just love watching for so many reasons. And that show is Restaurant Impossible. Why do you like the show? I love the show because of the transformation that happens, not just with the business, but also with the business owners as it relates to relationships. You know, I'm a leadership trainer, leadership speaker, and I'm all about transformation and watching the people come to the reality of themselves. Like this is the reality of the business. This is the reality of myself. This is the intersectionality. And then this is the transformation that's possible, man. And plus, I mean, Robert Irvine is just Great, right? <laughs> I'm gonna hook you guys up. You need to have him on this show. I'd love to have have him on the show and have a conversation uh, with him about about his journey. Uh, and I, and I want to ask you. I saw you. It was like three seconds, Mark. I saw you wiping a table down right before a big reveal. Oh yeah. And I, and I was like, that is that Mark? Is that Mark Summers? Because I didn't know you. You were you produced the show. So I was I was like, nah, that can't be Mark Summers. I don't. <laughs> I went on the internet and I, and I said, you know, let's look up Mark Summers, INDB or whatever it was. And it said, producer, I was like that. And so I went back, rewound it, press pause. I was like, that's Mark Summers. And he was yeah, wiping you know, down team, the table. You know, it, it's, it starts from Robert. Um, I've cleaned toilets on that show. Hmm. You know, when we're up against the wall, there was one thing we did with uh, Michelle Obama several years back and we were so behind the eight ball. And we had to open because she was on a tight schedule. And when she was walking in, we had to be ready. And so we basically didn't sleep. And at four o'clock in the morning, we were on our hands and knees, you know, cleaning toilets and doing whatever needed to be done. And that was the staff that we have. Uh, it, it initially started for me, but Robert weeds these people out in a nanosecond. If you're not willing to do anything and everything to open these restaurants, then I, I don't want you here. So our producers... Uh, our exec producers, uh, anybody who works on our show, 
is part of that cleaning, fixing, get it ready situation. And because Robert's military background dictates the way he handles life and people, um, and it just works. And, you know, there's a love affair between the staff and Robert. Um, I've stepped back. I'm more of a consultant on the show now. I, I did 160 where I attended pretty much all of them. Uh, I'm too old to do this stuff anymore. But uh, but uh, Robert um, is magical. And when you get him on the show, um, he motivates the world and he changes people's lives. And you see that transformation of families that aren't working um, restaurant owners and the relationships with their servers and their chefs and their cooks. He's got some magical thing and it has become one of the highest rated shows because it's really not a food show. It's a relationship show. How did you get to, to restaurant impossible? Now I'm a big unwrapped guy too. <laughs> I used to love watching unwrapped because I like snacks and uh, confectionate, <laughs> all of that stuff. Uh, how did you go from kind of in broad strokes, give us you know, the double dare section of life to shows like Unwrapped to like producing things like Restaurant Impossible? Well, you know, um, everything that's happened in my life has been a fluke. Um, I was pitching a show with a lady, Roseanne Gold, who had won three James Beard Awards. And while I was pitching her to the Food Network, they kept saying to me, well, why don't you do a show? Well, why don't you do a show? And I thought, why? I know nothing about food. I know about cooking. But somebody there, an executive, done their research and found out that the people who grew up watching me on Nickelodeon were now old enough and they wanted those viewers over on Food Network. And so Emerald was the king at the time. He was doing Emerald Live. And the first show I did was uh, called It's a Surprise. It was about surprise parties. And the surprise was nobody was watching. Uh, but they uh, came up with this special called Unwrapped. And another guy, Mark Silverstein, was the original host. He shot four specials. And I went up to do a, a special up in Colorado one weekend, and they sent me a videotape. That's how old this was, and said, look at this and tell us what you think. And it was unwrapped, and I said, you know, this show's amazing. Uh, at the time, Biography was the number show for A&E, and I said, what Biography is for A&E, I think Unwrapped can become for Food Network. So they signed me up, and I shot 13 episodes. They put us on at 10.30 on Monday nights, and we were just dying. It just it wasn't working. And so the president of the network, Judy Gerard, called me and said, Mark, you're killing my Monday nights. We're going to move you to nine o'clock. Uh, if it works great, if not, have a nice life. So they moved us to nine o'clock. All of a sudden, the ratings were flying in. So they put us on from nine to 10. Then they gave me a show called Trivia Unwrapped. It was a game show based on Unwrapped. And so it was all Mark all the time. I was Guy Fieri before Guy Fieri. I was on the channel constantly. I used to say to the channel, you know, I don't even want to watch 90 minutes of me. I mean, I think it's a little bit too much, but we were, we were doing it a lot. I then became a producer of sorts on various shows on Food Network. And people used to email me and write me and say, um, you know, I want to host a show or I have an idea. And I was so busy, I didn't have time to respond to money. I was living in uh, Philadelphia uh, at the time or commuting back and forth, trying to start this production company with some friends of mine. And uh, this guy kept sending me these tapes and these resumes, and I kept throwing them away. So my accountant calls me in New York and says, the IRS is auditing you. You need to get to my office tomorrow. And I, oh, my God. So I took the train. I get there. I knock on the door. And he says, uh, go in the office over there. And I go in there. And there's this bald-headed, sort of buck-toothed, big-eared English guy sitting there. And he goes, I can't tell you what he said to me. But hey, some expletive deleted. Why don't you return my phone calls? And I said, I have no idea who you are. And he said, Robert Irvine. I went, yeah. What's who's that? And he goes, I keep sending you these videos. Do you look at them? I got, Oh, you're the guy. I said, no, I, I don't have time. And he said, uh, 
well, I want to be on the Food Network. I said, yeah, we'll stand in line, you and about a million other people. And he said, this weekend, I'm performing at a food show, and you're coming to see me. And I said, nope, I'm uh, flying back to Los Angeles to be with my family. He said, no, you didn't hear me. You're coming to see me perform. And there was something about this guy. I didn't know him at all. Met him for 30 seconds. So I called my wife. I said, Alice, I come home Monday. There's some crazy guy who's a chef. He wants me to go see him. So I got in a car and drove in the middle of nowhere in New Jersey. And there was this food show. And on stage was Robert Irvine. Just, I thought he was ridiculous. But there was something about him that had the audience in the palm of his hand. So he walked off stage all puffed up. And he goes, what do you think of that? And I said to him, that may be the worst thing I have ever seen in my entire life. He said, what are you talking about? I said, well, <laughs> you, you had them in the palm of your hand. But what you're doing is so hokey and so old school. So he said, but do you think I could be a good host? I said, I don't know. It depends on the show. So I said, here's the thing you have to understand. If we start working today, the earliest we may get on is two years from now. Are you willing to put in that time? He said, whatever it takes. So we went and pitched the Food Network time after time after time. And they said, no, 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 no. But there was this one executive, Charles, who said, can you come up with a show against a clock? I went, what, what does that mean? Well, he's got to get something done before the time hits zero. So we went to the facility in New York that trained the New York uh, Rangers and the New York Knicks. And there was a woman who's a nutritionist. And each particular player had a lactose intolerant. They need this kind of protein. There were like a million things they needed. Mm -hmm. So the question was, if Robert walked in, looked at the refrigerator for the first time, could he follow from uh, he, if he got there at eight in the morning and they had lunch promptly at 12, could he satisfy all the players' needs? We shot that and it worked. And we uh, sent a little scissor reel to the Food Network and they said, okay, we'll now give you money to shoot a pilot. So the pilot was this, and I was scared to death. <laughs> Can Robert go in and in eight hours cook a wedding? But he knows nothing about it. There's no food, there's no kitchen, there's no anything. He's got to figure this out. And I was scared when we shot that pilot because I didn't know if he could do it. I didn't know how good a chef he was. I never tasted his food or anything. So he had to go in and do a thousand hors d'oeuvres and 200 sit down dinners in eight hours. And he was magnificent. And we made that pilot, gave it to the food network and they ordered uh, first uh, dinner impossible. And then we transitioned into restaurant impossible. But once again, Robert was willing to put in the time and say two years, five years. I don't care. I want to be on the food network. And that's what he did. So there was no IRS. It was just Robert. It was just my agent. Uh, somehow Robert, think about this, was smart enough to get my accountant. <laughs> to this day, I don't know how we found him out. And it was just a ruse to get me to come into an office and sit down with him. Oh, there's a there's a theme here, Mark. This this theme of persistence and creativity. This just kind of weaving through. So you're telling me that the Robert Irvine that I see on TV when I watch restaurant impossible. And then earlier than that dinner impossible is the same guy you met when you walked into that office. hundred percent man, whoever he is off camera is the same guy he is on camera. There ain't nothing phony about that guy. That's who he is, man. That's oh man. <laughs> I wish I had like four hours with you to really <laughs> kind of break down all of these stories from your experiences and working with just different shows and different talent. And I, I want to ask you, Mark, with the transition from being on, on camera talent, to producer how did you, how how have you navigated that and what were what were some ways that you were even 
better at a, as a producer? I mean, an f- amazing world-class host, but w- in what ways were you even better as a producer because you had been on-camera talent? You hit the, the nail on the head. Um, I never thought about being a producer, but when we transitioned from Philadelphia Double Dare to Orlando, uh, Nick Studios Double Dare, uh, management came to me and said, do you want to produce the show? I said, sure. I had never produced a thing in my life. I was scared to death. I had no idea what the heck I was doing. So I went to school on Nickelodeon's dime. And I learned how to hire and fire and, and edit and, and became pretty darn good at it. And then I got the confidence to go and do it elsewhere. So um, my feeling was um, I didn't know if I was going to host forever. Uh, certainly guys like uh, back in the day, Bill Cullen or uh, Gene Rayburn or, you know, uh, Bob Eubanks, they had really long, healthy careers. But your career is in the hands of other people. So you never know if you're going to get from job one to job two. When Double Dare took off, all of a sudden I got a call one day for a show called Couch Potatoes that I ended up hosting. And they called up and said, uh, do you want to do Couch Potatoes? I said, when's the audition? They said, you don't have to audition if you want it. It's yours. Well, geez, that had never happened to me in my life. But because I was on TV and I had looked like uh, I was authoritative and knew what I was doing, now they were giving me shows. So I was a producer and um, went to Food Network and, you know, one thing after another, first with dinner, then a restaurant possible. Then I started doing specials for him, one thing after another. And the reason I think I'm maybe even a better producer than I am a host is because I took the knowledge that I had as a host and was able to transfer it. Because with all due respect to Robert, he really wasn't particularly good as a host at the beginning, but he was willing to listen to me. And he would say, he would said to me, teach me how to do this. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now he could give a master class in it, but he was able to listen. And I've had three students in my life. The first was a young guy who you may have heard of. His name is Ryan Seacrest. Yeah. Uh, Ryan was a DJ, called me up one day, and we had a conversation. We went to lunch. I hired him on a show called Ultimate Revenge and um, was very helpful, actually, in getting him uh, idle. He was actually working for me when he got the offer to do idle, and I was able to get him out of our contract and get him over, and you know, the rest is history on that. My second student was Irvine, who's masterful. Mm-hmm. And my third was a guy by the name of Guy Fietti. I was oh, hosting wow. the Next Food Network star when Guy, this this is an interesting story. If I'm going too long, you can tell me to shut up. No, you're but, good. You're good. I'm, I'm almost 70 years old, and I just have uh, had so many things happen in my life. So I was hosting Next Food Network Star, and this was season two. And the contestants weren't taking it seriously. And I wasn't producing. I was just host. So I called a meeting at 8 o'clock, and I sat them all down, and I said, you guys don't get it. If you become the winner of Next Food Network Star, it ultimately could change your life. And you guys are out drinking and carousing, and you're not taking it serious. Mm -hmm. So I'm just telling you, uh, somebody's going to come out victorious on this, and it's the one who's going to work the hardest. So enjoy yourself. Fietti was really the only one I thought who listened to me. And we did a competition that day that was uh, at Sur La Tabla in uh, downtown New York, and it was a pastry thing. Well, you look at Guy Fietti and you say to yourself, if he knows the least about anything, it's going to be pastry. Okay. <laughs> he won that competition because he somehow, out of sponge cake and icing, created the characters of Sesame Street. And he won the darn thing. And the first thing I did is pull him aside. I said, your life as you knew it is going to change. I'm here to help you. Here's my phone number, whatever you need. So he came to LA and I took him around to meet agents. The agent he's with today, I connected him with 13, 14 years ago. And he's very sweet. And he calls me Obi-Wan because <laughs> um, to this day, he will pick my brain and say, hey, Summers, I got uh, you know offer A and B. What do you think I should do? Um, once again, he grows so fast that he really doesn't need my 
and knowledge. He's, he's far surpassed me. Um, but I've had these relationships with people and was able to build them from the ground floor. And they were smart enough to listen and know what they didn't know and talk to people who had the knowledge and the experience and then took what I taught them and, and multiplied it by 10. And that's why these guys are all so successful. You, you find people who are great in their particular industry and maybe not necessarily entertainment, but whatever the discipline, they're great. They're fantastic. They, they work wonders. They revolutionize their industry, but then they don't choose to, or maybe they don't have the ability to become the Obi-Wan. The ability now the 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 star becomes the sage and mentor and elder and guiding the next generation to to revolutionize the the industry. What keeps some people from from making that pivot and becoming the coach and mentor uh, as opposed to being the star with all the spotlight in their direction? Ego, uh, arrogance, not wanting to share your knowledge. Um, I get more excitement out of talking to young kids kids get get a hold of me all the time and before covid i would i, I don't know I, how many people i took out for breakfast lunch or dinner to give them advice okay mm-hmm. they connected with me and like you grew up watching me on whatever show they grew up watching me on and said help me and so i take people you know there's a deli near me in beverly hills where i used to live uh called nate nails and i would hold court in the morning with all these young kids who would want to have advice Hmm. And um, they all have my phone. For some reason, you can get a hold of me. My number's everywhere. My uh, email's everywhere. And people email me, and I respond. Mm-hmm. Um, because there was nobody there when I was starting off who was willing to help me. And I go back when I was a kid, and I wanted to get in show business so bad. And I was a, a regular viewer to any talk show, Merv, Mike, uh, you name it, I watched. And they did an hour on the Merv Griffin Show once with Bob Hope. And he said, one last question. If you had to point to one person in your career, Bob, um, that changed your life and made it happen for you, who would it be? And Bob Hope pointed to himself. And he said, I made it happen. There were other people along the way who were able to open some doors, but it was my aggressiveness, my pushiness, my passion that got me from point A to point B. And I thought, well, you know, if I'm ever lucky enough to make it, um, I'm going to try and help those that don't have anybody to sort of guide and direct them. And it's funny, many of the kids listen to me and have careers, whether it be in local broadcasting or whatever. And a lot of them just nod their head and never do it. They're not willing to put in the time. Hmm. When you think that I came out to Los Angeles at age 22 and didn't get my first show until 13 years later. Wow. That passion. Man. So what's, we look at the resume, you look at your website, you look at all the things that you've accomplished. What's, what's next for you? Um, you know, it's interesting. I never thought I would be able to stop doing this, hmm. but you know, uh, the world works in mysterious ways. And, um, I've been sort of put in this forced retirement because of COVID. I mean, let's face it, we're not shooting a lot of TV right now. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm actually fine with it. Um, I'm dabbling. I'm doing a couple of shows for uh, Discovery is launching a new uh, uh, direct-to-consumer uh, streaming channel. And I'm doing two shows for them. One called is The Last Unknown. The other is called uh, uh, Nature in Focus. Uh, my partner, Ian uh, Shive is just knocking it out of the park on that. He's the, the talent on that. 
Um, you know, I just got in December, we had just completed a 70 city, 18 month double dare tour. It was fun to go back out and do it. It, it was, it was brutal. I mean, when I first did it in my thirties, I could run around like that, but to go out and do these shows on a regular basis and we were traveling on a bus, we were doing it like a rock and roll show. It was crazy. Um, and so, um, I don't have, um, the desire as much as I once did to, I, what, what else do I have to prove? And here's the other thing. They're not hiring any 70 year old guys to host TV shows anymore. Let's face it. And, and you have to be realistic. You know, the one thing is, you know, people, you, you never get taught how to be famous, but nobody teaches you how not to be famous. Mm. And so I've had this 40 year run and all of a sudden now I'm not flavor of the week, month or year anymore. And so dealing with that for some performers is brutal. That's why the producing thing worked for me, but I got a couple of grandkids now. Mm -hmm. Um, and um, I don't feel that I have to work as hard or do as much, um, you know, pushing as I once did. So if the phone rings and uh, Pierre Quinn calls me and says, uh, can you do a podcast? I go, yeah, I checked you out first. Make sure you, I thought you could do the job. But, you know, you're magnificent. I mean, talk about a superstar ready to explode here, man. Uh, I don't know what you're doing to push yourself, but you really need to get you uh, in front of some of the big people because to do what you do, you know why you're good? You listen. Most hosts don't know when to shut the hell up, but you're a good listener. And that's why Johnny and Merv and Mike and all the people who have been successful, Dave Letterman, they knew how to listen. They knew when to get in and they knew when to get out. And you're key at that. So you need to push even harder to go to that next step because I'm telling you, man, you can do it. Mark, we've had an incredible, incredible conversation, loads of wisdom and and insight. If if people want to learn more about you, I know you're on social. I know you have a, a cool website as well. I, I call this shameless plug. I mean, after an amazing career in in, in show business, <laughs> I'm, I know you have that under control. But maybe for another generation of of people who not that familiar with you, what, what's the best way to to connect with you and hear more about your story and your work? Social media, I, you know, real Mark Summers on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. Um, I respond. Uh, you can find me. Uh, go to my website. Uh, there's all sorts of uh, numbers and uh, and places. And uh, I think didn't you get connected through Ryan? I did. My yeah. Uh, if you want to post Ryan's email, because uh, the best way is to go through Ryan because he gets to me and then I get back to people. Because you can. Uh, I think you initially did you initially connect with him? I think you did. It was. And, yep. and, yeah. And then he uh, he found me. I looked at your work. I went back to him. I said, "Set this up," and here we are. So Ryan Coyne, my assistant. If you want to post that on your website or whatever. Um, you know, you can do that as well. And that'd be great. We've had a great conversation today. My guest has been Mark Summers. I mean, amazing career in the entertainment industry and still mentoring and coaching to this day. Mark, thanks for being my guest today. My pleasure. Good uh, health and happiness to you, sir. Great conversation with Mark Summers about his work, about his career, about the ups and downs of show business and the reminder got to keep going. You got to keep going. I hope you took some great notes. If not, go back, listen to the conversation, take some notes, apply them to your life and leadership. And if you have time, go back and watch some old episodes of Double Deer. Watch some people get slimed. I know you're going to enjoy it. It's going to be a pick me up and check out more of the shows that Mark has produced and starred in. Hey, that's all I got for this episode of the Leading Wild Green podcast. You know, it's my mission to help you live learn and lead with confidence. So until next time, take care.
and God bless.